So then you get to the points of some of the, you know, welfare programs. Do chickens need toys? You know, do they need enrichments? And what do enrichments offer? You know, what do they get desensitized to those things? And so let's see if you go through that article, it ends up, you know, what makes a happy chicken? Because a chicken's a flock animal, wants to be with its buddies. You know, it doesn't want to be eaten by a predator. It wants food and water. It wants a comfortable environment. So if you meet those needs, then I don't know self-actualization is the right word, but yeah, uh, that chicken is in the best state that we can provide for. A whole new era of communication in the poultry industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global poultry industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Eastman works with you to accelerate your nutritional program innovation. Start your journey with us at Eastman.com. Fibro Animal Health Corporation. Healthy animals, healthy food, healthy world. Your partner for improving animal performance. Berg and Schmidt. AX3 Digest is a highly digestible source of protein with a low level of potassium, giving young animals a healthy start. Welcome to the Poultry Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global poultry industry. Your partner in improving animal performance, Berg and Schmidt. They believe the following additives are necessary in the poultry dietary. Functional lipids for an efficient dietary energy management. Phospholipids for emulsification, achieving a better nutrient intake. MCTs to provide energy and modulate the microflora within the intestines and enzymes for elevated use of fibrous materials and byproducts. Well, welcome everybody to another edition of the Poultry Podcast Show. My name is Doug Corver. I'm a poultry nutritionist with Alpine Poultry Nutrition. And uh, today we're going to be talking to Dr. Phil Steyer, uh, and he is an independent consultant from Dr. Phil Steyer Poultry Consulting, LLC. Welcome to the show, Phil. Thanks for having me. So uh, can you give us a brief background on, on yourself and uh, where you've come from, what your current position is? Sure. I guess the biggest part of my history just recently was uh, veterinarian for Wayne Sanderson Farms. I've been to Sanderson Farms uh head veterinarian for 22 years and an acquisition in 21 and 22 uh, changed that so that um, I went independent upon that acquisition and now I'm on my own. Before the 22 years at Sanderson Farms, worked for Lanco Animal Health for almost eight years in, in primarily poultry technical consulting. And before that was Arbor Acres. It's now part of Avigen. I was there three years. So I've had a little over 30 years in the poultry industry and all in, in heavy birds, broiler breeders and, and broilers. That's that's quite a a, a broad background within the poultry industry. So you've seen uh, the supplier side with Elanco. You've seen um, the primary production side with Sanderson. Um, Has that influenced where you're at right now in terms of how you approach problems and and, uh, deal with uh, customer questions? Most definitely. I think each stage has been a good stage. You learn something along the way. You know, and when I uh, was at Elanco, I realized what suppliers could provide. <clears throat> so uh, when I came to Sanderson, then I knew what I could ask for. And then I tried to be the customer, which I wish I would have called on as a supplier, which is pretty much forthright um, and just to handle objections simply, not to be um, evasive at all, but to let folks know where the situation was and how they could help out. 
So I try to provide that now, the consulting side, maybe understanding production veterinarians, um, what they need in their jobs, get the job done, and try not to occupy anybody's time with extra things they don't need to hear. So, so it seems like in my own experience as well, sometimes there's a disconnect between um, expectations uh, on both sides. So having that experience, you're able to, uh, to kind of bridge that gap. Yes, yes, I think so. So, so coming out of veterinary school, um, you had uh, some experience with small animal surgery. Uh, you worked with cattle. Um, so since then, you've mainly been working with poultry. Is that where your passion is? It is now. I would say when I went to veterinary school, I had it come to me. And it has been various experiences and give credit to folks along the way from undergraduate advisor who uh, said me look at chickens. And then when I went to veterinary school, uh, my externship with uh, Rocco, Dick Boyd, is now retired. Um, he inspired me quite a bit. And then uh, throughout the process, just folks have uh, put feathers on me now for 30 years. I think it's fit pretty good. Great. Um, so you mentioned that you've only recently started your consulting business. So what's that transition been like going from a, a corporation to, uh, to your own, uh, your own business? Well, Sanford Farms tagline was they were special. And I was told many times by outsiders, very special. And, uh, every day you got up running and going. And so now as a private consultant, it's not quite the same pressure I guess every day. And so for me, it's like uh, catching my breath. So great. In some ways, it's good, but some ways, it's, uh, I still wonder why I'm, not, why I'm not working every day, you know. I'm not running, every, not running hard every day, yeah. So uh, has that given you the flexibility to maybe uh, uh, get into or, or get deeper into some hobbies? Uh, not so much that, but some other commodities. Like I talked about doing all heavy birds, and so now I'm branching out back into leggerns. I think the last time I worked with leggerns was in undergraduate school at Penn State. And then turkeys was in veterinary school with uh, Rocco. So recently I've got back into those commodity groups and it's fun. It's, uh, and then also as a consultant now, since I've been at it so long, I've got friends everywhere. Um, so as a consultant, it's been fun to work with people in a different venue than I had in the past. So has it been a, a steep learning curve getting into uh, layers and turkeys? I, I would say I'm still in that learning phase, yes. So, you know, after all these 30 years, I think I know what I'm doing in heavy birds. Uh, the leggerns and turkeys are a different different uh, commodity for sure, different lifestyle. Yeah. So let's go back a little bit further. Um, you mentioned that uh, poultry really wasn't uh, on the radar as an undergrad. Did you have any uh, experience with poultry in, as, as a youth? Or I grew up in suburbia and uh, always intrigued with agriculture, always wanted to be a part of agriculture. I didn't really have that opportunity growing up. So at Penn State, I did everything I could in the College of Agriculture, joining various organizations and uh, participating as much as I could. And then uh, took some poultry science classes before I left Penn State. And then when I went to Tennessee, my focus was, was general practitioner. And uh, my last year, I went to Rocco. They had turkeys and chickens and also sheep at the time. So I thought that was great. We worked three different commodities. It wasn't long after I was there, the sheep went down, but I think they were already going down before I got there. I don't think I caused that. And then um, I did dog and cat practice back in Pennsylvania where I grew up and realized that that probably was not the lifestyle for me. And uh, thinking back through who I'd seen, what lifestyles looked good, and Dick Boyd, I, I thought of him, just his uh, interaction with a production team, with suppliers, with me as a student, and really thought his lifestyle was something I would like to have. And from him, I would say primarily uh, – drove me into looking at chickens. All right. Um, so you recently spoke to the National Restaurant Association. 
uh, about why restaurants are, are having trouble sourcing chicken that have been raised uh, according to the Better Chicken Commitment Standard. So first of all, let's, let's talk about what is the Better Chicken Commitment Standard? The Better Chicken Commitment Standard came out of a Whole Foods. Um, they had the GAP standard that they put together, and they put together a panel of experts, which are mostly from uh, activist organizations, and the experts being I guess, expert in activism, and put together what they thought were uh, measures or methods to have a better environment for the chicken, therefore the Better Chicken Commitment. Um, and then from that, then these uh, activist groups have taken this better chicken commitment and have asked to ask uh, restaurateurs to have their chicken labeled as BCC chicken. And the question came up was, why is BCC chicken so hard to get a hold of? Why isn't everybody doing it? Everybody wants a better chicken. And so I unabashedly stole uh, National Chicken Council's uh, seven points on why BCC uh, was not necessarily why what folks want to do in the U.S. And through those seven points, um, I think you can understand why folks aren't doing a better chicken commitment. And, and, and the final bottom line is supply and demand. I mean, folks will do that. And it's not to throw, uh, to say, anyway, that, what's that option for BCC? It's still an option. But it's not necessarily the best thing for the animal or for the consumer or for the restaurateur. So what, what are some of the specific things that industry is pushing back against? Is it, is it the idea of meeting standards for how the birds are raised, or is it the, where the standards have been set by these organizations? I think it's the sustainability factor. Um, what the Better Chicken Commitment asks of producers is to back up, back up genetics 50 years ago. And with that comes all the progress that's been made in the last 50 years. Uh, you go to the Avigen website where I pulled information down and you look at the, the improvement on sustainability, the carbon footprint, you know, the water use, the gas used. Uh, over 50 years, really what we have today is a better chicken from 50 years ago. So that's supposed to go back 50 years. At least sustainability is not the better chicken, not for the environment. Mm-hmm. So if I can just play devil's advocate here, um, if uh, if slowing bird growth down um, and uh, essentially making the birds less efficient actually does increase welfare. Um, is that a trade-off that, that the industry should be making? And I think that that would happen. You know, I think too, you know, we'll look at um, years ago, whenever there were issues came out of the geneticist and, and in all fairness to them, the breeding group uh, targeted certain measures, whether it's white meat yield or growth rate or feed conversion and there might be side effects. And at one time there were leg issues in the broiler chickens, and that was addressed genetically and taken care of. Um, so those things do overlap. And I do think sometimes uh, issues are not found until they multiply times millions. You know, you look at a couple hundred, a couple thousand, and you think you have progress until you multiply times a million, and then small differences get to be a big, a big difference. Mm-hmm. So the short answer to that is I do think they do overlap um, welfare and uh, performance. But at times they can get disconnected. Okay, um, so there, the, the the better chicken commitment standard is one way of assessing um, a set of standards. So, are there other standards available that might be more practical or relevant or or accomplish what uh, the better chicken standard claims to want in a way that producers can or will? Uh, adhere to? 
That's a great question. <clears throat> and there are other standards. And again, not to say that the better chicken commitment, if folks want to do that, that should be an option. But the National Chicken Council also has their animal welfare guidelines and audits to go with that. And that was derived from industry. And so the good and bad of that, you know, they can say the fox watching the chicken house. But um, I think practically speaking, the folks that have been taking care of chickens for all these years probably know the chicken the best. And so asking them what's the best thing for you and your group um, makes sense rather than just saying, okay, arbitrarily, this is what makes me feel good. You know, it gives me quite a bit of pause when folks say, I don't like a dark house. A chicken shouldn't have a dark house. Well, until you start acting like a chicken, I don't know that your opinion really counts. Right. Um, so what uh, what level of uptake has there been from restaurants um, in you know being willing to accept uh, a different standard? And that, that's to be determined. I think it has to happen on uh, individual restaurant bases. Um, when I was down with the NRA, I used to say NRA because it gets everybody confused which one you're talking about. But um, the restaurant tours, uh, they want to do what the customers want. And what they have is these activist groups coming to them and saying, you should sign up for this. If not, then we'll do a publicity event versus what the consumer really wants. And so rarely is the consumer asking for a higher cost product. Rarely is the consumer asking for a particular standard um, that the animal's being raised by. More times than not, and I think we've seen the market data, uh, folks that are eating chicken meat first worry about, is it safe? Is it wholesome? Does it taste good? And then can I afford it? And those are the kind of the big three. And after that, then you start getting into the discussion of how is it raised? Has it got, you know, animal protein in it and all the other things? But most most consumers, most poultry consumers um, are not asking about rearing standards. So then I think it's incumbent upon then the producer to uh, do the best they can for the animal. So it's, it's a, maybe a matter of educating the public and, and providing uh evidence and, and research and, and uh, support to um, explain to the consumer why some of these sustainability um, measures aren't, uh, aren't actually good for, for the chickens or, or even good for them as consumers. And I think the challenge with that is who's listening? You know, you can have a lot of science and do you think poultry industry has quite a bit of science out there, but how do you get in front of the, the consumer? How do you get in front of the customer? You know, how do you uh, intervene when uh, folks are taking out billboards? When the primary job is just um, communication, which I'd say the activist groups, that's their primary job is communication. And then when you get a group that their primary job is raising chicken, the communication is a part of that, but not the major activity. So it's hard to make that message that, you know, we're farmers, we're taking care of the animals. Say, what's the word, you know, uh, attractive to the the general population. It's easier to get a buzzword and put it out there. And I think we we in agriculture in a whole have really struggled with getting the message uh, palatable to the, to the public. So it, it's a never-ending task, really, to uh, continually keep that message out there. And and maybe as expectations probably are becoming maybe more unrealistic, um, the industry needs to, to, to get out there. So, you know, uh, I think we've touched on it a little bit, but what are some, some key points that um, industry can use to show the consumer that, you know, welfare is and the well-being of the animal is uh, important and, and crucial to the industry. I mean, on the whole, you look at the last 20 years in terms of just the hard numbers, objective livability, for instance, has generally improved. Um, when we went to antibiotic 
free era, uh, it is a step back a little bit there. But still, on the whole, if you will follow the trend of the last 20 years, livability has been improved. And then you look at um, the growth rate. You know, folks may say that is a detriment, but on the plus side of that, you know, an animal that is growing well obviously is not restrained. Is obviously not being hindered, not being uh, restricted. So I think there's another good story there is, you know, how many pounds we're producing in less time. That's a good thing. It's not a negative thing. Um, the fee conversion, that, that, you know, using less inputs to get the uh, meat to the table, that necessarily a welfare be, uh, measure other than uh, if the animals are doing well, then they're going to convert feed well. And I've even said that, too, in the welfare studies we've done in the past that I've been a part of. You, know, you do a subsample, whether it's a hormonal study, a gait scoring study, a tonic immobility. You do various non-performance measures. You cannot do the entire population. But when you bring the birds to market and you weigh them all and you weigh all their feed, then you have every every bird counts. You know, every bird's voting into that, that house. So, you're again, your denominator now is millions, not just hundreds. And so those birds will tell you uh, – with objective measures that they're doing well. Yeah, and I think an important part of that welfare uh, piece is is when birds are more efficient, it takes fewer birds to meet the the demands for chicken meat. And so, um, you know, we, we always talk about reducing uh, the number of animals needed as, as a, a welfare measure. So, um, you know, I think that's that's something that the industry can hang its hat on as well and, and you know, mark as a, a success. I agree. Definitely. Yes. So you've talked about uh, some work that you've done in the past, looking at the concept of, of bird well-being. Um, a little while ago, you wrote uh, an article on self-actualization for chickens. And, and uh, that might sound a little bit strange to our audience and, and uh, maybe some questions about, uh, you know, <laughs> maybe you are Dr. Phil. Um, <laughs> but can you talk a little bit about uh, that article and, and what came, how it came to be? Sure. That's probably one of the most fun articles I've written. I've, I've done various articles throughout the years and uh, thinking about, again, uh, 30 years of experience of watching the animal, interacting with the animal. And I've done controlled studies. I've done, you know, studies with the intent of looking at well-being by thinking, what does make a chicken tick? You know, if we're going to, as a veterinarian, we're going to watch animal behavior, then what are the needs of the chicken? What are the most primary needs of a chicken and what are they telling us? So through those years of observation, you know, the baseline oxygen, of course, you know, any aerobic animal needs oxygen. Can't live without that. But you ask a question, uh, does a chicken prefer temperature or food? You know, is it more important for a chicken to be comfortable or is it more chicken for, for important for a chicken to have food? And it's easy to see on a baby chick. If the thermal zone, if you're too hot or too cold, that baby won't eat. So that's a very clear indication in terms of their the hierarchy of needs. They need thermal protection. Um, even, even beyond that, you know, what's their biggest concern? What's the biggest cause of uh, livability issues out, outside the conventional market? It's predation. So the primary need even before food and water and temperature is a protection from a predator. And we do that, you know, closing the houses and giving them a place, safe places. And again, you can see that you walk through a chicken house and if it's a, a darkened environment or even a bright environment, if you put something over their head in a dark environment, put a flashlight over their head. Or if you're in a bright environment and you hold your hands up, immediately the birds scatter because that to them, it's hardwired. That's a, a predator. So you go through those needs and, and their behavior and what they're going to tell you in terms of what's required for a chicken. So then you get to the points of some of the you know welfare programs. Do chickens need toys? 
You know, do they need enrichments? And what do enrichments offer? You know, what do they get desensitized to those things? And so let's see if you go through that article, it ends up, you know, what makes a happy chicken is a chicken's a flock animal, wants to be with its buddies. You know, it doesn't want to be eaten by a predator, it wants food and water, it wants a comfortable environment. So if you meet those needs, then I don't know, self-actualization is the right word, but yeah, uh, that chicken is in the best state that we can provide for. So it, it kind of sounds like you're relating it to Maslow's hierarchy of needs for, for people. Exactly so. That was what it was yeah. nicknamed. Yes, yes. Yeah, so I found that article really interesting. And uh, maybe if our, our listeners uh, are interested in finding it, um, I think they can go to poultryhealthtoday.com. Is that right? And, yes, and, sir. And uh, it's called uh, Maslow's Pyramid Self-Actualization for Chickens. So uh, I recommend that. It was uh, a fun a fun and informative read. It wasn't, uh, uh, it wasn't just a fun read, but uh, also informative. And it made me think about... Um, yeah, what what those chickens are really looking for, and and how they rank uh, the importance. So, um, yeah, really enjoyed that. Thanks, Phil. Oh, good. Yeah. So, let's bring that back to the better chicken commitment. Um, and so, maybe just in a nutshell, how does your article uh, maybe help the industry to think about answering some of those? Uh, topics that have been brought up in the, the better chicken commitment? Good question. That, that's very foundational. I think, you know, who's asking for what, you know, are the folks that are asking for whatever requirements, are they thinking of the animal or are they thinking of what they want? You know, and again, the, the folks that made up, and I use this for the, the, the gap program or animal activists and several of those organizations, their stated goal is to stop consumption of animal protein. And so that's their objective. So what are they trying to do then? Make it less attainable for most folks to, to eat, consume animals. Versus if you're going to say you're in the chicken business and you want to make more chickens, you're going to look at what's going to take to make those chickens do the best. And so we're going to look at what those things are that we can provide the animals needs and meet them best. And I think that's the difference in the, in the, uh, the view, I guess, so when you say a worldview, but a, a view of animal well-being. Is it something that scratches a human itch or something that scratches a chicken itch. And I think I'm always going to vote, with the, vote for the chicken. I think that's a great way of looking at it and something we need to keep in mind. Um, you know, our perceptions versus what is, what is a chicken's perception? Yes. Let's, let's talk a little bigger picture now. Um, you've, you've had a lot of experience in the industry. You've worked in, on the supplier side, on the integrator side, and now as a consultant. Um, what do you think is the biggest challenge facing the industry, the broiler industry right now? And I see that we have, you know, emerging diseases without emerging control. You know, there's a lot of products out there um, generally regarded as safe and it's kind of really up to the consumer, the uh, producer to figure out which of those is going to work. So it's a challenge to see what's going to fit a conventional product. And there's things that have hope, you know, but it's a challenge to meet all the requirements. You know, they're not going to use uh, antibiotics important for humans. That's a, that's a good thing if you can do that. But at times, sometimes antibiotics are needed. You know, to say if you're limping, a crutch is helpful. Um, you know, why do you limp? And that's, the, you know, the foundational question. Can you stop the limp? For sure. That's what you want. Prevent disease, of course. But things happen. And I do think that's a big challenge is um, the pathogens aren't getting any easier. You know, you look at Campylobacter coming up. That's a new one. Um, Chorizos hit the leggerns. That's, that's a new or uh, old but new situation. Inclusion body hepatitis was quiet for years. And now it's, it's back up again. And 
uh, seems like one thing after another. Of course, influenza is a big elephant in the room. What are we going to do about that? And, um, mm-hmm. So I think that's really a challenge going to be is trying to handle changing diseases without, without having a change in our medicine cabinet. Do you think it's uh, that the bird is changing and becoming more susceptible or are, are there just more pathogens uh, developing and, and we're, or we're expanding the flock and the more birds you have, you uh, increase the chance for interactions with pathogens that might not have been an issue before? I think all three of those, I think you hit all the topics. Yes. I do think, you know, um, Sanderson Farms was the fastest growing chicken company in the U.S. And uh, some diseases in North Carolina, whether they built last, uh, were really not existent where the Sanderson built the farms. And after Sanderson built the farms, those diseases became more evident. And so I think we just like, connected the dots. There were voids between the dots and then more farms made it. So the population base is bigger. So, yes, I think the population is a big factor in that. But then influenza. And now it's well adapted to wildfire, you know, and they seem to be able to live with it. And they drop it off and some species can't handle it, you know, whether it's a buzzard or an eagle. And then the chickens versus turkeys, you know, why is it more in broilers than the broiler breeders historically? So the, definitely the viruses have changed, you know, and of course, coronavirus, you know, COVID is a human example, but bronchitis on, on the poultry side, that's been a changing. Uh, and that's just part of the nature of that virus. So I think we have all those factors in play. And then genetics. Yes, uh, these birds are selected for growth characteristics. They are selected for uh, better legs, better you know, wings, whatever. And have they have the primary breeder sacrificed on immunity? I don't think they're intentionally doing that, but is it unintentional? Maybe. You know, I don't know how far up that is in the priority chain. So what does the industry need to do? Well, <laughs> I also wrote an article about that. Uh, watch the flock um, with influenza being what it is, biosecurity. And I've had various conversations with uh, production veterinarians. And, and the weak point is not the program's implementation. And the program gets to be so onerous that nobody's going to do anything. So you can say, yeah, we, we have this policy in place, but if they're not doing it, the farmer's not doing it, if the farm help is not doing it, then it's not being done. So in terms of disease prevention, it's got to be disease introduction. And how does that get around? Uh, quite a few viruses are airborne in dust particles, but then um, – People are fomites. You know, people carry stuff from one place to another. You know, what do the farmers do in eastern Carolina? What do they do for lunch? Well, they go to the owner restaurant that's open in 20 miles. Well, that's all the farmers do that. So if somebody has something on their boot, everybody gets to share that boot full of whatever. And if they haven't done a good clean break back to their flock, they're going to take that with them. I think we've had evidence of that. So I do think by security, as the flock increases and as the pathogens change on us, it's going to be even more critical. I don't have the answer for implementation. Yeah, it's a difficult one. Um, do you see any uh, any big advances coming in terms of uh, new uh, vaccines or, or new drugs uh, that the industry can use as a tool? I think uh, more on the vaccination side, um, you know, some of the subunit vaccines rather than using wholesale vaccines. I think some of the influenza vaccines over in Europe now are using uh, subunit vaccines. They're able to introduce well, other recombinants introduce parts of a virus into another virus so you don't even express the whole virus. So you can't be contagious with that virus. I think that's great. Um, some of the bacteria vaccines, um, you know, some, uh, using some parts of the bacterial cell that aren't necessarily whole, express the whole uh, whole cell, uh, including the, the endotoxins, exotoxins, and the, the cleaner vaccine, so to speak. That should be better. So I think on the vaccine side, there's definitely a push towards uh, new technology, which should be improved technology. 
And then on the feed additive side, again, we keep on looking for things that have been used um, maybe historically. I think a lot of the different uh, phytobiotics, you know, there's always been a place for herbal medicine somewhere, just haven't used it on a large scale. Mm-hmm. And so the, some of those things have helped, but um, they haven't had the same impact that the synthetics have had. Yeah. Um, so that that brings me to um, your your view on the move away from uh, growth promoting antibiotics. And, you know, we've seen legislation in some countries. We've seen a voluntary industry uh, strategy in other countries. Um, where are we at in that? And, and what do you think the future is going to hold? I say growth promoting antibiotics, of course, didn't really like that term, but that's what how they got labeled. And, um, you know, if they're promoting growth, what are they what are they hindering? What are they stopping? And, you know, Sanderson Farms was like the last stronghold, verbal stronghold, made actually advertisements about, you know, treating animals with antibiotics responsibly. And they're going to be in their lead veterinarian. I got to represent that a time or two. And I think antibiotics used responsibly are the right way to do that. I don't think with holding antibiotics um, for a marketing scheme, some people choose to do that. And that's what they're going to have to do if that's their market. But in terms of if we have technology to use, should we use it? Well, you know, that goes back to the uh, veterinary client-patient relationship. You know, the client always determines what the veterinarian is allowed to do. And I use an example of um, a broken leg in a dog. You know, you could splint the leg, you could r- put a rod in the leg, or you could plate the leg. And that's three different cost points. And most folks would go more than a splint. Most folks would go the rod in the leg. But very few people are going to pay the thousands of dollars for a plate. Even though technology is there, it's the best thing to do but just aren't going to do that. So we go to poultry producers. They're not growing chickens for themselves. They're growing chickens to sell. So if the market demands whatever, they're going to do their best to meet that demand. So withholding antibiotics um, as a marketing scheme, as long as there's an avenue for the, you know, the therapeutics, and most of them do. Most of them have a secondary line or you know, a morning run or whatever that they can, if the birds, whatever reason, need to be treated, they can put them through a different a marketing system. So I think that's okay, um, but the antibiotics have provided good. And, and, and we're raising birds on the ground, on broilers, and they're always going to be in contact with soil-borne organisms. So you're going to have Clostridium is always going to be there. What are you going to do about Clostridium? If you don't use an antibiotic, you have to use something. And, uh, and I think you know, the antibiotics had a place and still could be used, and uh, we just have to figure out other options to do that. Yeah, it's uh, it's – a challenge for the industry in both in terms of what to do and how to communicate those decisions to, uh, to the, the consumer. So. Yes. Yeah. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Adiseo provides nutritional solutions and services to help producers achieve their targets in high quality, safe and sustainable way. DSM, helping customers with efficient, sustainable poultry production. Ivonic Animal Nutrition, we are sciencing the global food challenge. AB Vista offers pioneering products and technical services tailored to the poultry industry to help them succeed. Natural Biologics is looking deeper to find the natural solutions to your poultry health challenges. Ivonic Animal Nutrition is committed to ensure food security and safety while reducing the ecological footprint of animal farming. Its products and services use evidence-based solutions that seek to promote animal welfare and reduce reliance on natural resources. All this is underpinned by long-standing industry partnerships and deep customer understanding. Ivonics focus on efficiency, sustainable, healthy nutrition, and collaborations with livestock farming partners creates value for customers and consumers. 
so again, coming back, you've had a really broad uh, experience in, in both in veterinary medicine in general, but also particularly in the poultry industry. Uh, what What's the most important lesson that you've learned over your career? Well, I think everybody knows this. It's a people business. You know, you work with the animal, but it's the people to get it done. Like I tell everybody, as a veterinarian, I never did treat a sick animal. It's always been the farmer or the caretaker. And then the diagnostic system, we need everybody uh, full bore working as hard as they can. So, you know, relationships, you know, your network, you know, tell young veterinarians who you're going to trust. You know, it may not be me, but you have somebody that's in your particular commodity group, then you ought to know the three or four names to call when you get into a situation. And I did that even, you know, as an experienced veterinarian. You know, somebody somewhere else had a problem, and I knew they had it, and they would share it with me, and then I would share my my experiences. And so I think that the people side, the networking is hugely important. So my next question is about uh, a piece of advice that you would give to somebody starting out. And, and maybe that uh, is the same answer. Yes, it would be. I, I think, you know, to, to find a good mentor or several mentors, I don't know, one person can do everything. Um, find somebody that's willing to put their time into you. And then that, that pays forward too. I've had it. I was blessed with uh, experienced veterinarians giving me time and I try to do the same. Is there a topic that we haven't covered yet that uh, you would like to, to talk about? We hit a lot of my hot topics. Um, <laughs> yeah. I think we ended up probably with a thing that I've maybe enjoyed my career the most, which is mentoring, you know, having students come in. And it's been fun with a range of experiences. Uh, folks that come in without any knowledge of poultry at all, they ask good questions. You know, why do you do this? Well, we've always done it that way. Well, why do you do it that way? And so some of those things um, come to light. You know, does a foot bath really work? You know, well, yes, it does. What does it do? You know, does it stop pathogens? Well, no, but it gets you to think where you've been, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So that, that's been uh, probably the highlight uh, has been mentoring and seeing folks, of course, 30 years. I used to be the young, cool kid, and I'm not, not, not that anymore. <laughs> well, you've got the experience now. Yeah, the white hair is for sure. <laughs> um, so... Uh, if people are interested in, in finding you online, where can they uh, find you? Well, I'm at LinkedIn. Um, that's one way to find me. And, uh, and then, of course, my email, drpstare at gmail.com. Um, now I've been associated with AAAP for all these years, the American Association of Pathologists, and, uh, through organized medicine. I've tried to participate in all that. So I think I should be easy to find. Okay, great. Well, uh, Dr. Phil Steyer, thank you very much for your time today in uh, the Poultry Podcast show, and uh, I hope uh, we'll get to meet in person soon. I do too. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for joining us, and we'll see you next time on the Poultry Podcast show. I'm Doug Corver. Looking to elevate your brand and captivate audiences through the power of podcasting? Look no further. Introducing the custom podcast brought to you by Wisemetics, where we take care of the behind the scenes so that you can focus on what truly matters. Podcasting has become an invaluable tool for brand awareness, but let's face it, putting it into practice can be a daunting task. It's incredibly time consuming and requires technical know-how, but don't worry, we've got you covered. With our experienced team at The Help, we'll handle the operational aspects so you can channel your energy into what your company does best. Are you ready to unleash the podcasting potential of your company? Schedule a call with one of our specialists today at the link in the bottom of this episode. You'll also receive a free podcast strategy consult tailored to the unique needs and goals of your business.